Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today I'll be interviewing Nick Neely, whose best-selling 2019 book entitled Alta California chronicled his journey to recreate the Portola expedition that we covered in a previous episode, starting his journey in San Diego and making his way on foot to San Francisco, recreating that famous journey. It was a great conversation. I know you will enjoy it. If you'd like to support us, you can do that either by making a financial contribution on Patreon, uh, which, is in, which the link is in the show notes below, or by giving us a rating and review. It really goes a long way to help. And just a heads up, in this particular podcast, we did have Zoom poop out on us at certain points, so bear with us with that. Uh, but please enjoy my interview with Nick Neely. So there's been some horrible fires in California. And before we get into Portola and your work and the expeditions and uh, your journey up the coast of California, I just want to talk about uh, what California lost uh, in those Santa Cruz uh, fires. Um, I live in Fresno and we had one of the biggest fires in history happen near us in the Sierra Nevadas in an area called Huntington Lake and Shaver Lake, uh, which Mm -hmm. are these two kind of beautiful like resort style places where people that live in this barren wasteland I call Fresno uh, can escape for a few days at a time. Um, so uh, as someone that's lived around there in that area, uh, what, did, what did the world lose in those fires? Well, <clears throat> that's a, you know, as a record fire year, it's still ongoing anyways, but also what we've come to expect from California. Um, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of Santa Cruz, I know I think of, um, places like Big Basin State Park that was torched. Um, I, you know, I've read a little bit about that. I don't know to what extent the trees were killed, but certainly the infrastructure um, and a lot of legacy trees probably probably did die or will. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I think, but mainly what I think we lost is just sort of our, again, all over again, our na- naivete about, about fire in California. Um, thinking that fires on co- in coastal ranges will be smaller or more containable than those in the Sierra Nevada, which is, tends to be drier. Um, you know, we think of Santa Cruz as fog, fog central, um, and yet here's this raging fire that threatened to come over the top of the ridge uh, towards Silicon Valley. Um, and what a nightmare scenario that would be. Um, and I think, uh, um, you know, uh, th- thinking about my work uh, exploring the Portola expedition and what they encountered, they encountered a landscape that was um, uh, quite frequently burnt off by the indigenous Californians. And, um, and uh, you know, they had been doing that to uh, kind of tend the, tend the landscape as it's, as it's called, um, uh, make sure the mosaic of especially coastal chaparral and um you know sage uh was was thriving and providing them with you know coming back with with um things they could harvest um but uh, you know and and that's talked about a fair amount but i also i also you know it occurred to me in light of all these fires um that they were also uh protecting themselves you know tending to their own safety by setting these regular fires and making sure that that they could continue to exist um uh, in the places where they were, because if there's a major fire, you, you, you know, that's, that's, um, that's societal upheaval, upheaval. Um, 
and they would have to, you know, territories would shift. So by, by each, uh, you know, many of the tribes and villages um, setting their own, their own fires on a regular basis, they were basically um, uh, tending to their societies and their, their way of life. Yeah, I, I think there's, go go ahead. Ahead. I, I was just going to say, I think there's, you know, there's, some, there's a lot of mythology about uh, European explorers and what they discovered when they arrived. And I think one of the mythologies is, you know, this quote unquote virgin landscape um, that's kind of mm-hmm. troped around in a lot of history books. Um, you know, that's just not the case. Um, uh, right. Indigenous people had been here for a long time. Uh, they had changed the landscape significantly. I mean, one of my favorite anecdotes is that the fact you know, that there were beavers uh, the size of mountain lions roaming around uh, the United States, um, that, <laughs> that the Great Plains were basically like an African safari. Um, and the indigenous people arrived and killed off most of those uh, large man- you know, animals, one for food, but two to just like, you know, you can't have mountain lions just roaming everywhere or okay. they're going to take your baby or whatever. Um, and so I, you know, it's, it's a Same myth. It's a myth, right? It's a myth that and it's a it's it's often a progressive myth, you know. And I mm-hmm. I think that uh, I'm guilty of it as anybody that wants to think that California was just this perfect paradise, and then the white man arrived or the European arrived, and then it just you know it was destroyed. It's just it's a change, right? And I think that's we can talk about your journey uh, up the coast in a second, but like I think the the concept that there was you know this kind of Garden of Eden thing going on. Is just not right. the case, um, and so let's talk no. about the the coastal ranges and the and the coast. Um, but first, let's. I just want to talk about the reason uh, why. So what what you know, I've 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 considered taking walks in my life. You know, <laughs> like I consider walking my dog. I consider uh, you know going on a hike. I mean, I you know I live near the Sierra Nevada, so there's lots of great hikes. But I have never once considered walking from San Diego to San Francisco. So what, what, uh, as, as someone that was living in California, um, and probably had a, you know, somewhat sense of your history, what, what ultimately pushed you over the edge to do that? Well, I mean, charitable of you to think that I had some sense of my history as a, as a Californian, but I, I think that's, um, far from the rule. And I, I really didn't, I, I was more in ecology and uh and biology uh, the natural the quote-unquote natural landscape and uh in uh in high school um i didn't really make connections between how inextricably tied the natural landscape is to human history and um you know our policies and um uh but you know in terms of one so i i left california after high school um and i didn't really ever come back to live. You know, I come back to visit um, my parents who live in the, in the, on the peninsula in the Bay Area near Palo Alto. And, um, and uh, uh, but unlike many of my friends from high school who, who maybe left California but then came back, I didn't, I never really moved there again and I never held the job there. Um, so uh, in some sense, this project was was tantalizing because it would be a kind of return to California for me, and it would be a chance to to truly kind of take on the landscape and the history that I, I actually didn't really learn as a kid. Um, I mean, I poked around in terms of the landscape. I poked around the Bay Area, 
Um, you know, when I, especially when I could drive and I was more on my own terms, um, I, I knew my like local neck of the woods and open space preserves pretty well, but I'd hardly spent any time in Southern California. Um, I'd gone to LA on a few occasions, but you know, didn't really get outside the city. Um, so this was, this was really my first encounter with, with much of the California that I walked through. And certainly it, it's going to feel that way when you're walking. I mean, even if you've driven those stretches, if you're not paying total attention, you're not really taking it in. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, from a writing perspective, uh, I, I sort of see myself as an environmental writer and that's, that's been my, my, my uh, niche. Um, but I wanted to expand myself and I think it's important for environmental writers to push on the human history front and, show how those are entwined, um, you know, human history and natural history. Um, and I was, I was, of course, uh, you know, excited by the idea that I'd walk through these, all these different kinds of, of environments, urban, suburban, wild, um, or, you know, even designated wilderness on one occasion in Big Sur, um, farmland, agricultural areas, um, pretty much, you know, everything uh, can be found from San Diego to San Francisco, all kinds of, you know, every gradient, the whole gradient of built environments. Um, so that seemed novel uh, in, in terms of the writing community that I, you know, am in and inspired to environmental writing. You know, there's, there's not a lot written about urban environments. And there's uh, usually, you know, we think of nature writing as being about walks in the woods that are kind of high in the sky and um, looking only at birds and not thinking about the trail under under your feet and i wanted this book to to kind of blow up that that um you know way of writing yeah so i mean i had a bunch of thoughts when you were talking um one of them was that you know if you i'm a, a person you know that just loves you know kind of the history of of of, of, of literature and writing and you know, I mean, you kind of started almost in Raymond Chandler land of, you know, right. L.A. And then you yeah. work your way up and then you're suddenly in John Steinbeck land and Salinas. And it's just such a it's such a cool like journey. And so um, I guess I have two follow ups. One is. Um, what did you were you surprised by anything in your walk up the coast in terms of the natural environment, uh, things that you didn't. It, I mean, you knew what you were getting into, but in some sense, you know when we drive the one, we're always astounded. Right. Um, yeah. and two, uh, did you have, did you have, uh, kind of like, uh, uh, Cheryl Strade's like wild or like Bill Bryson's a walk in the woods in your brain as you're, as you're kind of working on these, uh, working on your book? Um, maybe I'll answer the second question first because it okay. sort of segues from what I was talking about my motivations for the project and um the answer you know this there's a there's a Cheryl Strayed problem for a writer interested in this kind of project or for environmental writers in general um and or Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods those are the two most often cited um trekking books uh right. of the modern era um and yeah so those are those were albatrosses hanging around my neck to some extent I can't say that I I really looked at them as models, I had read. I had read. Um, like I guess it was seven or eight before years before this project, um, and I'd read some of Bill Bryson's *A Walk in the Woods*. 
Um, but I didn't really want to do what they were doing. Um, I wanted to uh, sort of prioritize what I was what I was seeing rather than sort of in the in the histories that I was encountering rather than the difficulty of the journey. Um, I didn't have the kind of uh, memoir or the, the the difficult family history um, thread that strayed um, strings through her book. You know, her her um, recovering from various kinds of addiction and and the death of her mother, trying to deal with that on her walk. And I, I didn't, I didn't want to kind of navel gaze. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a, um, a, a valid reason for doing that. And that's reached a lot of, and spoken to a lot of people, but I felt like what I could do was really train my eye on the landscape and on the history and put, uh, put my foot, you know, put the pedal to the metal. More of, more of travel writing more than like the navel gazing kind of like, yeah. Self-discovery memoir yeah. through a journey. Yeah. And I, I shouldn't call it navel gazing. I mean, Strait's book is important. Um, uh, but uh, I, you know, and I didn't really want to talk about how difficult it was to do the walk, though it was, was difficult, but you know, that's been done. Um, anyways, I've probably gone on too long about, about yeah, those. No. So they did, they were in the, in the very back of my mind, but um, in the end, I didn't, I didn't really feel like I was competing with them, I was just doing what was right for this for this project and for retracing this historical journey. Um, as for um, the, you know, what surprised me about the natural landscape of the coast, I mean, I was constantly surprised by individual, you know, uh, encountering or learning about new species, especially of plants. Um, but more generally, I was, um, I think, I was just. Kind of amazed by how open California is, um, especially at walking pace. Uh, we think of California as highly developed. Um, you know, it, it it gets kind of a bad rap for being you know overrun with track housing and and areas. But but I I felt you know I, there's nothing but vistas and um, um, it's amazingly preserved for considering how many people live there and, and, and Californians are lucky that they, that they live in that kind of matrix. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, it, it gave me a lot of hope in that regard that there is, there's a lot in California that has been protected and will continue to be open space, even if it's not natural or wild and is, is, um, you know, pretty weedy in areas. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about kind of what you were tracing. So uh, we've talked about the Portillo expedition quite a bit and the mission system as well. Um, and so you kind of interweave those, right? I mean, and if we think about, um, you know, New, uh, Spain and their expansion into North America from central Mexico, well, I guess central Mexico is part of North America, but if we think about that expansion and kind of uh, into what is the United States today, you know, a lot of it was to, you know, expand out into this frontier. Um, and so they, you have a lot of people going on these journeys re in relatively unknown places. Um, and, you know, it, that's kind of, you know, I think it's the same reason why we're obsessed with people like Elon Musk, you know, ex expanding out into these unknown places, right? And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, unknown for certain parts of the world, right? But very known for the indigenous people who are living there. So can you yeah. talk a little bit about uh, the journey that you're trying to replicate and, uh, um, how 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 that guided your uh how that guided your path sure i mean i was i was retracing the Pertola expedition of 1769 and 
they um they had uh you know landed on in baja california from what's now mainland mexico um uh uh earlier that year or or actually the previous year and then they had um um walked up the length of you know of baja california to san diego in two waves um where they kind of regrouped and then a smaller expedition led by Portola started making the push um, north in search of Monterey Bay. Um, and they left on July 14th, 1769 um, and, and arrived, or they, they saw, they glimpsed the San Francisco Bay, um, uh, not knowing it was there, um, all together as a group on November 4th, and then um, turned around uh, about a week back to. San Diego. Um, uh, but, uh, um, uh, so yeah, I, I, so I flew into the San Diego International Airport on July 14th, um, 247 years later. And I had in my mind that this book would come out on the 250th anniversary of the exhibition, which it, which it did in the fall. Um, it came out in the fall rather than summer for the, for the start of the exhibition. It came out for the end of the exhibition. Right, right. Um, so yeah, I was really, I was, I was as faithful to the route as possible and I was moving at their pace. So, um, my mode was really to, um, read the, you know, there's, there's several, three journals that were kept on the expedition and, um, based on the, um, the most authoritative, we, we, uh, know where they, we, we have a good sense for where they camp night by night. So I did my best to camp in those same spots on the same night. And um, uh, uh, so I was moving maybe like eight to 10 miles a day on average. And um, I would read the journals. Uh, I had read them before, obviously, to plan the trip a little bit. Um, and then each morning I, or the night before, I'd sort of read those, that, those, that day's entry from the past, from, those, from the journals that Padre Juan Crespi kept and Bertola. And, um, and then as I was walking, I had in mind, you know, what they encountered, what their experience of that day was. And I could, I could try to make connections to the present. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Absolutely does. Um, so <laughs> we've, talk, we've talked about Portola quite a bit, but I haven't yeah. really talked about uh, Crespi. Can you just share a little bit about uh, who he was? Um, he's not someone we really uh, kind of considered before. Yeah, Crespi, you know, I, I I float the idea that he's he is if not California's first writer um, one of them. I mean, obviously, Portola and um, uh, uh, Miguel Costanzo, who is an engineer on the expedition, were keeping journey uh, journals alongside his. Uh, theirs are much um, uh, they're they're not as lengthy, not as uh, in depth. Um, Costanza's is kind of a more, uh, is a good read because it's, it's fairly passionate and he doesn't hold back with his opinions and Crespi's by contrast is, um, pretty, pretty, um, he's got his eye on the prize, um, and he's the official chronicle, chronicler of the expedition. So he's very descriptive and, you know, just making sure he gets down, uh, soil, uh, you know, he's recording soil quality, water <laughs> quantities that kind of thing, the number of people they're encountering. So it's kind of a dry read. Nonetheless, he may be California's first writer. He, he came um, uh, uh, with a wave of, of uh, missionaries that led by uh, Junipero Serra and um, from Mallorca. And he was, he worked in um, 
northern Mexico on the on the frontier there before um, transitioning to Baja, California, where he was briefly stationed in one of the missions um, uh, vacated by the Jesuits, or actually the Jesuits were expelled, and Pertola arrived to uh, facilitate that event. Um, and, and the Franciscans moved in to replace them, but then many of those first Franciscans went, or several of the Padres uh, went north, um, led by Sarah to Alta California. Um, and uh, he, he, uh, he was, he was, I, I think he was kind of looked down on by other, some of the other Padres uh, and, and Sarah, who was, who was overbearing in many ways, um, uh, was critical of, of, uh, of uh, Crespi, but he also um, asked to be buried, you know, in the end, Sarah asked to be buried next to Crespi in the Carmel mission. So he was an important colleague and um, fellow fellow friar. So how did the missions play into, into your work and how did you think about them? Um, because obviously, you know, we can talk about the journeys of the Spanish and we can talk about the, the, you know, the, the environment. Um, but then there's this people group living there as well along the coast. And so how, how did you think about the missions on your journey? And, uh, is, is there things that you learned about, um, about indigenous groups? I mean, I, you know, we've had people from the Shumesh on before um, mm. and talking about the legacy of the mission system. And I don't know if you know this, but you know, there's been quite a, I'm sure you do, but quite a bit of a movement to, to remove uh, at least, well, not remove. I mean, to, to transition Sarah statues around California mm. to other places that have more context like museums or to the actual missions themselves. And so one of the big ones that was moved recently was the Sarah statue in Ventura was moved uh, out of the city square to uh, kind of the mission. So I just wanted you to talk okay. about missions a little bit and how, what you think about that based on your journey and your research. Um, yeah, I, I visited as many of the missions uh, as I could that were in striking distance of the route. Um, the Pertola expedition was scouting for mission sites. That was one of the things they were specifically tasked with. Right. Um, and many of the missions were located in valleys that they cross through um, and um, but not all the route you know the they they took a slightly different route on the way back and then future expeditions took slightly different routes so the missions weren't uh, all located where they had where the Bertola expedition first suggested they should, should be as a result you know some of the missions were too far off the Bertola path for me to get to walking um, but I was you know for the most part I was I was visiting a mission every three or four days, which is, which is the intended, you know, the, the missions as, as they were infilled, you know, first they were farther apart and then missions bridged those gaps, um, were designed to be about a day's ride. <clears throat> um, so day, that, that translates roughly to three or four days walking. Yeah. Um, uh, and well, I guess if you're going at a, a stately pace, like I was, yeah. um, and uh, so, yeah, it was, it was, that was a kind of an intense uh, aspect of the, of the trek for me because I've I'd hardly had time to process the last mission and here I was at the next one. Um, so I did, I did feel uh, a palpable mission fatigue um, <laughs> later on in the journey. Um, and it was, uh, you know, I wanted, the book was, it's a great moment in time to write about. And I, I sort of had that in mind from the start because I, I could write about, this first overland encounter with 
where the indigenous Californians, the Patola expedition um, created. And then I could write about, you know, obviously those indigenous cultures on one side of that moment, and then the mission system, the missions that cropped up shortly thereafter and really devastated those populations, changed change, um, life in California so dramatically. Um, but I really, I really mainly wrote about um, the founding of the missions in the book. I, I was, I was taking on a lot, a lot, and I was also writing about California history in general, just opportunistically. Um, so, um, and 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 I think, I, I in retrospect, I sort of wish I had written a more comprehensive um, history of the missions along the way in the book, but I didn't really do that. It's a little spotty, but I get, I think you, um, you certainly get a flavor for the way the concerns and some of the challenges that occurred um, as they were founded and, and then the, the ways in which it was extremely harsh and problematic. Um, and I, I hope that comes, comes through in the book. But I don't, what was your specific question again? Well, yeah, I, I was just kind of wanting you to talk a little bit about the missions and your, and your feeling from the journey. And I, I, I think you kind of covered it, which is, you know, it's, it's the mission fatigue, right? The, you know, this, this explosion. And it's just, it's so interesting to me, you know, thinking because I, you know, my background is, is religious studies and, you know, I spent a lot of time with Francis of Assisi. And then when I think about the missions and that they were Franciscans, um, you know, it's just such a startling contrast to what they did uh, relative right. to who their, you know, the, 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 the founder of their movement was. Um, but right. yeah, I, I was more just wanting you to talk about uh, your sense of the missions, you know, kind of their legacy after your journey. Um, that's that's what I was hoping. Um, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, to some extent, uh, good intentions, uh, disastrously, disastrous outcomes is sort of the story of the missions. And, and well, the good intentions in the mind of the missionaries. Um, right. But, uh, and that maybe is the story of, of, you know, religion as an institution worldwide in, in some ways. Um, but uh, I, you know, I, it's been, it's been the push to, uh, you know, to sort of um, put Sarah in perspective and maybe knock them off the pedestal that California has put him on for so long is, is really heartening to see. I think, I think that's important that we need to have these critical conversations about Sarah. And, you know, where his likeness is presented and, and is he, he is a very, he's a very violent figure to some, um, reading, reading, you know, he, he definitely, uh, manipulated, terrorized, um, uh, sent soldiers after, uh, after, um, neophytes, um, you know, in, indigenous Californians to, to, to capture them and bring them back to the missions. And I, I don't, I, I would come be in the camp that would say that there was, there was, this was a form of slavery in many cases, uh, in the missions. And, um, so yeah, should we, should we, um, uh, glorify Sarah? No, I think he was a complicated man and a man of his times. Um, but in the context of all that's that's gone on and is going on currently, um, you know, it's 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 I think valuable to see his statue um, put in different places, put in places where 
that aren't public. As you mentioned, the, the, if it moved from the square in uh, Ventura to the mission, I think that is correct. And then in the mission, that complicated story needs to be told as well. And um, it was interesting to, for me, passing through so many missions so quickly to see the the um, different takes missions had on the mission system. And some some would own up to these controversies. Others, it was it was only romanticized and, and that was was not even mentioned. Um, and, and, and there has been change even since my walk. I, I was able to return to the Santa Barbara mission um, earlier this year and and the interpretive material had completely changed. And I, I had talking to um, someone there that, that, you know, that had been very controversial. People coming to the missions had not, not appreciated hearing about um, the devastating effect and some of the, some of the abuse that, that had gone on. Um, so, and, and that had all happened, I think, because, uh, you know, a new um, uh, curationist or historian had, had been hired, um, a more progressive one, perhaps. And, I think that's good movement. I'm glad. I'm glad to see that, and it's it's tough for us all, but it's it's for the better. Yeah, and I, you know, it's such a complicated thing, and I, you know, I try to I try to make it more complicated because it needs to be. I mean, we need to be thoughtful about this. You know, I mean, if you think about the history of New Spain and then coming over, you know, Unipero Serra is not uh, Cortez. You know, he's not. You know, he. I mean, he should not be in the same camp as some of those conquistadors that just wiped out, you know, whole masses of people, whether intentional or, yeah. you know, by carrying germs. Um, but it's important to remember, too, that, you know, the king and queen of Spain were upset with the conquistadors because they were getting rid of slave labor, basically, taxable yeah. citizens. And mm -hmm. so, you know, um, you know, trying to compare like genocide and the, the Native American slave trade is, is not, not a game that I want to play. And I, you know, yeah. I think that you know, glorifying one or the other or, or trying to make one sound better than the other is not necessarily uh, a fruitful activity. And there's plenty of great people in California's history that we can lionize more than uh, someone that you know, profited on the you know, forced conversion and slave labor. So I, you know, we can, yeah, we, that's a, that's a, that's a topic that's, it's, it's, I think you need to do the hard thing of learning first before mm -hmm. you condemn. And I think we're quick to condemn without learning. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think you should compare Cortez and someone like Sarah, but you know, that doesn't mean yeah. you should lionize him necessarily. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm certainly not making that comparison. Oh no, I'm not saying you are. I'm just talking about generally the discourse around like, yeah tearing down statues and, you know, I mean, we can, Confederate yeah. stuff is, is makes sense, but you know, I think I just like when people tear it down with some thought involved, you know, <laughs> that's my preference. Maybe as a teacher, yeah. that's what I want to think about. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'd agree, but also, you know, the, the people who, whose stories aren't being heard, sometimes that's the only way for them to create change. So I, Absolutely. I support that too. Um, in certain cases and, um, you know, there's there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, we, we shouldn't tell shouldn't tell communities how they should protest for their lives. And I, I think that's that's um, spot on. Absolutely. Well, so I want to kind of make a little bit of a jump, um, you know, uh, to some of your other work and talking about the environment, and the history of California. Um, you know, there's nothing there's nothing really that's changed uh, the landscape of California uh, more powerfully. Uh, than the construction of dams all across California. 
Um, and, you know, from the beginning, mm -hmm. um, the mission system uh, sought to change the landscape, whether to get water funneled uh, to the mission to support agriculture um, and different things. And I think of, for me, one of the biggest things that I think about where I'm located in Fresno is how some of the dams totally changed the composition of the Central Valley. Central Valley used to be a swamp, you know, full of large predators and, you know, large mammals. And there yeah. was this thing called the Tulare Lake that used to exist that was enormous, one right. of the largest freshwater lakes on the West Coast. And it is, you yeah. know, gone. Um, and it certainly provides very fertile farmland, but, uh, the ecosystem that was there, you know, if I think about the history of the Yokuts people and using, you know, when I explain to people that they, you know, Thule reeds were a big thing and that's where Tulare comes from the name, you know, they said Thule reeds, like the ones that grow near water. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, yes, they're in fact, before California started damming up the rivers, the Sierra Nevadas, you know, may, you know, basically made the central valley into a swamp and so anyway i, I just wanted to yeah. hear your thoughts about the legacy of, of dams in california it's something we've talked about particularly with the santa barbara mission um because that was one of the first uh missions to really try to control water mm -hmm. um, and so that that's been there since the early 1800s um so should we yeah. should we be tearing down more dams in california do you think uh I, I mean, yes, uh, you know, that would be the easy answer. Of course, that's enormously complicated. Dams are there for various reasons, for flood control, um, for, you know, for wa water storage purposes. Um, and if we don't have solutions to those things, then you can't just simply take down other solutions, you can't take down a dam and, and create a riot of problems um, downstream, right. either in terms of, you know, water supply or, or uh, flooding. Um, so is it, is it tricky? Is it enormous? It's going to be enormously tricky. Is it going to be enormously expensive to, to bring those dams down? Yes. But is it healthier for, for everyone and for, for certainly for those watersheds and for, you know, the ecology, at large, um, absolutely. Um, in terms of the uh, book, you know, I think about, I wrote dams, about dams um, most, uh, or first in the book, uh, in the San Gabriel Valley. And um, there I came up to the Whittier Narrows um, Dam on the southern side of that valley, which protects, um, you know, a huge number of people, you know, quote unquote, protects them from from flood um uh and uh yet that that basin is almost always dry because uh water is dammed further upstream uh, from it um and and at the same time that dam seems to be to be failing um kind of uh symbolic of of some of the de infrastructure decline in dams all over california but so i visited that 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 site i walked across the dam um and, and sort of looked south into la basin um from there you know see all the houses that that um would be or could be flooded if if that dam wasn't wasn't there and interestingly the the original san gabriel mission had been um had been founded at that uh, the whittier narrows but it had flooded several times in its first few years and so they made the decision to move the mission further north in the in the valley um, uh, 
Uh, but up, and so what they did to make that that mission, you know, the new site of the mission um, prosper is that they put in um, dams uh, up against the San uh, San Gabriel Mountains, and um, uh, there was a whole chain of, of sort of beautiful springs that were important and even sacred to to the the natives in the LA Basin and. Um, one of the first things they did was create dams and, and bring water to the mission for the for the fields and and um, that that dam is actually sort of still standing and is owned by a sort of mom and pop small water company um, and I didn't have a chance to visit it but I would love to because apparently you can still see um, the handprints of some of the mortar on on the mortar that was put over the original dam and that that would be just sort of a haunting image uh just to, to take in i think um yeah there's a lot yeah. of there's a lot of water companies that still own these like historic dams uh up and down california that you know are you know right. kind of serve you know serving some purpose uh, but it, most of them have been consolidated into these larger yeah. water companies over time um, right exactly um, so, but you know i i do think i do think um we're going to have to rethink as, especially as water quantities continue to change in California, more water in some areas and far less in others. So we're going to have to rethink our dams. And whenever you can pull out a dam, um, one should, um, one should find the, the funds to do that, uh, especially if they're anadromous fish that run up those streams. But even apart from that, you know, so much life uh, is lost when a river river dries up and, and there's no, you know, hit invisible ridden or river flowing beneath it. Um, you know, everything is affected uh, alongside it, and and for for a great distance. And um, it'd be great to have that flourish again in areas. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I definitely don't want you know if if the 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 big dam in, in the area where I live is the Friant Dam, which is you know kind of on your way into the Sierra Nevadas, and you know you can actually see the skeleton of the river. Um, there's this giant Canyon, like when you're driving to yeah. Yosemite that you drive through where the river used to run. And when you see the size of that Canyon, you think about the water that ran there. It's just such a haunting thing. I mean, it just, it feels like this giant metaphor for California, you know, this kind of like sense of control, but you know, the, the devastation that comes with it. I wanted to talk yeah. about that as a transition uh, point to talk about, uh, you know, as kind of our last two concluding questions about uh, Exodus, you know, there's, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, you know, with between the pandemic and the fires and the years of drought, you know, I just, when I talk to people about the state of California, particularly people that more on the right, right wing end of the spectrum, there's a constant state of I'm about to leave, you know, uh -huh. there's a constant state of like, Idaho is the promised land or whatever. It happens um, to be where I am, yes. but not, not for those reasons. <laughs> yes. So I, I guess um, as someone that left um, and someone that's living in one of those, you know, one of those places that Californians talk to, what's your sense of that? Is that something that, uh, you know, as, as I assume your parents still live in California as well. Yeah, they do. Um, mm -hmm. So what's your sense of that? Is that just the perpetual California uh, complaint uh, threat, which is, you know, it's impossible to live here. I'm going to move somewhere with lower taxes and more, more land, or is it just, 
you know, or is it a real thing? Is it, are these, do you, do you think these fires and all these things are, are compounding enough to push people out? I, I do think, you know, that the, the environmental disasters and changes that are occurring in California are, you know, absolutely real and will, will become deeper, even deeper problems than they are, they are now. Um, I think with enough money and enough atten you know, attention, which would be justified, um, you know, these things can be generally managed. Um, and, uh, you know, does it mean relocating people out of, out of, you know, the, out of forest edges, um, that, that interface and it might, you know, it, it, not allowing them to rebuild in an area that's really fire prone. Um, um, but you know, this is not, this is not unique to California. This, we, we need to, as a, as a nation, as a world, uh, face the facts and say, this is in various permutations is going to happen all over the Southwest. Where are they going to get their water in 50 years? There's, there may not be any, you know, Phoenix, how does it exist? Um, yeah. And I was thinking about this, not to interrupt you, but like, remember a few years ago when they, they had that massive flooding in Houston and there was all this discussion about, you know, how people were able to build on floodplains. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's just this, like this, I mean, cause it, it supports the economy in a lot of ways, this kind of like, uh, insatiable growth and expansion, right. Mm -hmm. That, um, is not, not regulated well enough. And so then you have these people that are living on these floodplains in Houston and, you know, builders are just allowed to build there knowing that eventually something is going to, you know, something is going to take out these homes. And so it feels right. that way too in, in these mountains where like it, like, I, I mean, there hasn't, I will say this in the area where I am, there hasn't been a fire as severe as this in a long time, but right. it's just, you know, it's a roulette wheel every year, right? You know, you're just constantly, is it, it is my number going to come up this year? Is the mountain near me the one that's yeah. going to burn this year? Yeah. So. Right. And the fire intervals will get shorter. You know, the, you know, a, a burn might provide protection in the past, but with as dry as things are becoming, you know, fires will occur, occur more regularly and it won't. And, and in other places, floods are going to occur more regularly. And um, so I don't think it makes sense for, uh, you know, us collectively to, to, you know, kind of bail out those poor decisions and allow people to rebuild uh, in some cases, um, uh, you know, and who's paying for that. It's, it's not the corporations and the people who are creating these problems at the largest scale. It's, 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 you know, the middle class and, and, um, you know, those who are, who are struggling. Um, so that's, that's a different, <laughs> that's a different direction, but, uh, in terms of California exodus, uh, yeah, I think, I think, you know, people will look for, um, other places to go for various reasons, political or, or environmental, um, or simply because the density in California has gotten so extreme, the traffic is so bad and haven't headed off, you know, problems in that area very well. Um, that's only, only natural. I don't, I don't think I would chalk it up to like, you know, California's, um, uh, unique, you know, the unique mindset of the California always looking for the next frontier. It may not be that per se. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure I want to buy into that myth, but, um, yeah, we're all, we're all going to be looking for, for places to go. Um, and then when it gets bad enough, people will, 
will jump ship and 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 something you know that's that's true is that uh, in the inter age of internet and especially we're learning in this season of the pandemic that their remote remote work remote employment can work it, it does facilitate um, those kinds of kinds of changes so yeah this is an incredibly interesting um, moment in our in our history in our our settlement. Absolutely. And I remember this is probably 12 or 13 years ago. I remember the cover story from this Atlantic magazine that I'll never forget. And it was a picture of like a, a tundra and it was like, and there was a, a for sale sign or something like that. And mm -hmm. it, the, the title was, you know, Siberia, the next housing market or whatever, you know, we're just going to, we're just going right. to keep pushing further and further North, you know, um, so that would be that of course, you know, the tundra is a terrible place to build because it's thawing and sinking and, and becoming a, a wetland. Right. And, and it are, you know, there's, there's, yeah. Where, where does one move because things are changing where you might move just as fast. Um, but yeah, being here in Idaho is it, it has been eye opening to see that you know the extent to which Boise has grown and become a, a boomtown. And and you're right, there is um, a, a lot of conservatives from Orange County and um, Southern California ha seem to be they think that is a a, a haven um, and that Idaho is a is a haven. And so you're getting that that movement. And it's and in some ways it's just kind of entrenching our our divisions. You know, Californians becoming bluer and Idaho redder. And, um, is that healthy for anyone? I don't think so. I haven't thought about it from that perspective, but that is interesting. The, how the demographic changes will be changing Idaho's composition. I hadn't considered it from the, from the, from the people living in Idaho, you know, these kind of masses of, uh, you know, California refugees, uh, changing the politics. But, um, I, I, uh, I want to talk about one more environmental thing before I get some book recommendations from you, which is, you know, there's this kind of ongoing discourse in California and you've already kind of touched on it, but I want to give you a softball that you can just hit out of the park. Um, this discourse between, you know, climate change and then burn control, you know, mm -hmm. and there's just kind of people treating it like one or the other, um, you know, kind of, you know, Gavin Newsom coming out and saying, you know, it's very much a climate change issue. And then yeah. kind of local, you know, local people in these different towns affected saying, no, it's just a burn control. You know, it's, it's the Sierra club who's not letting us burn for us. So how do you, how do you see that kind of like debate back and forth? Well, I mean, I think we can't, we can't afford to deny any longer that this isn't a result of climate change and each year the average temperatures are higher the relative humidity in these forests is lower there's simply less moisture in this in the in the wood and when you add a spark to that that the results are can be catastrophic um but yeah should we be managing these forests um absolutely i i i think you know we we need the funding for that yeah, the federal government um owns the majority of of open lands, you know, uh, around California and, um, more money needs to be devoted to tending those forests. Um, yeah, we should be doing prescribed burns the, the, you know, the trouble is that for so long, there was a, uh, there was a suppressed fire at all costs, um, policy and, um, it created huge, you know, as we know, huge amounts of buildup of understory and, and debris, um, and, you know, that's, that's just hugely problematic because you can't do a prescribed burn in that environment 
um, you have to go in and do um, really care. You have to pile up slash and do burns of that nature at just the right time. Um, or you have to remove that stuff. Um, it's, it's just a huge amount of work. So, I mean, there's, it, it, the challenges are enormous. Um, but yeah, we have, you know, we have to make these, these changes at a national and global level. Um, uh, otherwise that work may not even pay off. You know, it may not be enough if you could, you could, you know, take all the limbs off all the dead limbs off the lower parts of trees, remove all the, the, you know, slash natural and human made from a forest. And if that fire burns hot enough because of the relative humidity is low, it doesn't matter. It's going to, it's going to fly from tree to tree and reach the reach houses anyways. So, um, you know, we, we need we, all hands on deck, all approaches, uh, would be my recommendation. And, um, you know, it's a matter of owning up to these problems and, and devoting the resources to them. You know, we have to put our money in the right places and, and California has to continue to make uh, a loud case that it needs, it needs money for this problem. Yeah, I wish this would move beyond politics because we're all drowning together. You know, we're all, all of our mouths are pressed, you know, three inches from the ceiling and the water's rising. And it's yeah. just, it's so hard when, you know, that when there is this suggestion that the water's, there's no actually, there's actually no water in this room um, as you gasp for breath. And so I, you know, I hope that, you know, and I think, I think more progressive people need to be open to these kind of prescribed burnings as well. I think there's movement on both sides of the kind of contentious debate. And so I don't, I don't think, I don't think, uh, you know, the, the liberal or progressive movement is at all against prescribed burn. Um, I don't, I'm not sure where you're, why you feel that way. Oh, I, that, that was just an assumption I was making. Please correct me. I, I, that's what I, at least I've, I've allowed, you know, kind of the newspapers to frame my perspective on this is that, that, but, uh, more progressives are open to kind of that kind of force control. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think they've been advocating it for many decades and, and a lot of the prescribed burns that have occurred, you know, have been put on by agencies have, have been that kind of forward thinking, um, you know, that push that we need to do something and, uh, we need to, we also need to let fires burn when they occur, um, if it can be done safely. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of, there's, it's gotta Big be done news. safely. Right? <laughs> you can't light a fire if it's going to get out of control. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I don't, I, I, I hope this isn't, this is not in the end a political issue. This is about survival or, you know, a certain community's survival. Uh, or versus displacement. Um, so, well, that's um, good to hear. I, you know, I talk a lot about sources, and clearly, I need to check mine as well. And you know, it's it's hard in California because everything gets so politicized, and particularly where I am in the more kind of conservative sector. Uh, but I want to go ahead and finish with just some book recommendations, either about California or environment. You know, either in your research that you mm-hmm. found extremely helpful. Um, or just books that you're reading right now that you'd recommend the audience that are, you know, California history related? Um, yeah, let's see. I mean, I, I kind of like that, or, uh, um, perused, uh, a, a lot of history, local histories, um, in the writing of this book, Alta California. Um, are there ones that stick out? I've tried not, not well, you know, I'm, I'm more of a, I guess I'm drawn more to literary writing in general. So, 
I was really um, treating these books fairly utilitarian from a utilitarian standpoint. Um, but I would recommend, I would argue that um, Joan Didion's Where I Was From is a, is an essay. It's a beautiful essay, but it's also a work of history. It tells her, her family history and, and um, in many ways the history of California and tries to get at its, its um, you know, unique or, or particular mindset. Um, it undercuts its exceptionalism, which I think is a, is a, is a, is something we can't really hear enough. You know, I think that's, that's important to California and, and for us all. Um, and, and then another book that I would recommend, it's not, it's a novel, but it is in many ways a, you know, a, a work of, that gets at environmental history is, would be Wallace Stegner's All the Little Live Things. Um, and that one's kind of, among his work is, is pretty short and sweet. It's kind of a parable of, of uh, development, um, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, it's set where he lived in Los Altos, um, near, near Palo Alto and what's now Silicon Valley. And just the way that we as Westerners and as Californians have tried, have tried to create a Garden of Eden willfully blind to, uh, many of the, the, you know, the, the kind of dark underside or the, the problems that have been created and washed over um, at the same time. And it's, it's just a, it's just a beautiful, it beautifully evokes the California landscape and, and um, is a, is a great encapsulation or parable for, for, for the challenges that California continues to face. So he, he wrote it in the sixties, right? I think. Um, that's, that's so great. I'm glad you rec recommended fiction. Cause I think, um, you know, fiction, uh, particularly when you're looking at history is overlooked, you know, we're, you know, particularly historians are used to just dealing with, you know, you know, these primary sources or these big tomes. And it's, it's, uh, I think looking at it and, and, and I, I appreciate that you recommended Wallace Stegner because I think California needs to take more ownership of Stegner. You know, he spent so many years yeah. at Stanford that he's, he's a, he's a California inductee in my mind, even though I don't know where he's right. originally from. Uh, I, I, I just well, assumed the Midwest. Um, he, let's see, where is he? Born, I'm forgetting, but he was kind of all over the West. Um, his his family was a little bit itinerant um, or uh, restless. His dad his dad was very kind of pro problematic figure, but they were in Saskatchewan, and then he spent he spent the um, bulk of his childhood in Salt Lake City, and, and I think that kind of remained home for him um, for the rest of his life. But yeah, had had Stegner written a uh, you know a work of I don't think of Californian history. We would we would hold tight to him as as a you know a master Californian writer. But he only he wrote these fabulous novels instead. Yeah, Californian and so he, we, yeah, we should I, we should hold on. He should be one of our you know totemic Californian writers. So having a totemic lionization in general is is uh, tricky and i know it's just so tempting as humans we just we it's just you want to yeah. you want to have your superheroes right and especially in a literary world but that's kind of like i don't want to say a, a world that's overlooked but uh you know in a in a in a far less literate culture you know holding up novelists is something that i will always stand up and do and say this is someone yeah. that we should, you know, when we consider who our uh, heroes and idols are today for the most, the vast majority of the population, uh, yeah. I'll gladly take Wallace Stegner. Well, I appreciate you coming on and I appreciate uh, your contribution to California history and 
you know, getting Thanks, people to, to look, look again at uh, some of these early periods, you know, I mean, the, the Spanish period and the Mexican period, you know, kind of are quiet in our K-12, uh, you know, education, but mm -hmm. uh, they actually are, you know, they set the course for most things in California, the, the sources of development, you know, the major yeah. cities and where they are, you know, a lot of these things uh, can be traced back to the Spanish period. So I think yeah, that's, con that's, your contribution is, 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 is very important. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I try to show in the book and show it on the ground. Um, you know, boots on the ground uh, in this, in this case that, yeah, everything that California has become was, was, was pretty much, uh, those were the same preoccupations of the Pertola expedition as they moved north into the quote-unquote unknown. Um, well, thank you very much for, for having me on in this I episode. It. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for listening. And one other thing, if you haven't signed up for the newsletter, please do. The link is in the description below. It's something that I'm experimenting with, and I'm trying to provide uh, a list of what I'm listening to, reading, and watching each week as I prepare these podcasts. I know you'll enjoy it. Until next time.